0: Today, we're grateful to have Annie Malo on the podcast. Annie is a partner at Holland and Knight's real estate division, and she gives us deep insight into what's occurring on the industrial and retail sector on the East Coast. She gives us the kind of perspective of deal making that only someone who does hundreds of annual transactions can. Look, if you're interested in deal making, investing, or an agent, it's well worth a listen. Annie, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today.
1: Uh, thanks for having me i really appreciate it
0: so before we start um can you introduce yourself to our viewers
1: yes hi my name is annie malo i am a partner at a national and international law firm i'm currently working out of the boston office but i travel a lot Um, and i do commercial real estate particularly volume transactions so my clients tend to buy or sell or lease more than 20 or 30 sites in any given year, which is kind of how I define volume. Um, but I provide general uniformity and reliability in volume clients.
0: So why commercial real estate law? Because like, there's a lot of places that you can practice law. Um, why, why did you choose real estate?
1: So real estate's a bit of who I've been my entire life. I started doing real estate and real estate investing with my dad when I was 16 years old, Um, and we started doing that the real dirt way. We were pouring foundations and shoveling gravel and laying um, laminate tile. I don't even know that you can call it tile anymore, but back in, in the early 2000s, that was tile. Um, But he and I spent our nights and our weekends along with my sister and my mom doing those things. And so I have ground up real estate development since I was 16, which is now more than 20 years ago. So I started doing that with my dad. That company grew in North Alabama. I went to college and then law school. And when I graduated from law school, falling right back into the real estate, I already knew the space. I knew the needs of the business and I started practicing real estate and started my own real estate development company. So it's honestly, I would say it kind of chose me at this point, I, I didn't really make a formal decision. It was just a part of who I
0: am. So I wanted to touch back on that. Uh, so it's very rare that folks that are in the law are also involved kind of with that investor mentality. Um, how do you balance the idea of being uh, part of the transaction? Uh, often on a lot of projects, and then going out and doing investing on your own?
1: So one, I do keep them very separate. So I do real retail and industrial leasing, buying and selling. Um, and that's my sweet spot in my professional life. Personally, my real estate development company is single family and multifamily residential. So the two are different. But when it comes to financing and the needs of the business and being profitable and cap rates and all of those things, they they intertwine. And I do think, you know, having worked in a law firm setting, when an attorney comes up without a basis and understanding the deal, you can really miss out on why we're negotiating the terms that we are Um and. I work really hard to understand. And then I know what it feels like to be on the business side when a term goes sideways or a deal goes sideways and what that really means. And that's what I can give my clients. So I have clients that call and I have former clients that call and say, hey, this is a legal question, but what would you do if you were the developer? Like, what does this make you feel like? And I can say, this is my concern. This is how I would handle it recognizing we are different people our risk assessments are different our risk adversity can be different but I can say this is what I have experienced being the result of this decision
0: I mean Simon Senek has talked ages about the why you know your your why why you do things and I think one of the biggest things that makes the, the difference between a good real estate attorney and a bad real estate attorney is how many questions they ask <laughs> a developer and uh, and a, uh, a broker about why they're doing a deal and um, each deals unique um, reason. Um, can you explore um, a little bit more on that? Because I think one of the things that that draw me uh, to you in particular is you have a background uh, at at Harvard, at MIT, at really like going in the ins and outs of deals. And so like one of the things that's discussed often is deal uniformity. And I know you do a pretty large volume of deals. Um, what, what would you say is the, the biggest thing that you're seeing in the market right now in terms of what's shaping kind of your perspective on the deal-making process circa you know, uh, quarter three,
1: 2023? So I'll say, For me, the uniformity is the value in a lot of what we do. So when it comes to one person who may do one or two deals a year, your goal is to get the best deal, the best lease, the best purchase agreement, and all of those things. And that's a great place to be if you're doing one or two deals a year because those make up your entire process and those are your entire income and your goal. When you're doing, I've got clients that do 25 deals a year. I've got clients that do 250 deals a year. Um, when you're doing 250 deals a year, you realize the value may not always be in fighting till the end and getting the best you can get. The value may be, in, and it sounds silly, but the value may be in five years from now, knowing that all your leases, the bottom line is, this is the same in all of my leases. Is it the best term that I? could ever have gotten, probably not for the majority of your landlords or your tenants. So if we're looking at it from a retail tenant side, maybe you're powerful and you could have gotten more because you out leveraged 60% of your landlords, but having to go back every three to four years and see what you got in that one versus what you got in another deal and constantly making sure you're not exercising things inappropriately or too early or too late because all of your deals are different. So you may find that, you know, you really pressed against one landlord, you had no leverage against another. Having those two deals typically have the exact same structure, even if the little things change, mean that five years from now, when you say, oh, well, I know that Annie's team did all of our deals in this time period. I know that this was our bottom line. I have my deviations." You know, memo and issues list that doesn't say that we agreed to something different, my one pager that says, hey, this is on our standard form, I can rely on the fact, my gut can say, well, typically this is what's going on without having to go through the hours or rigmarole of pulling files and having another attorney reread your legal document just to make sure. There's a lot of comfort in that. And that's what a lot of my volume clients are are really looking for is more reliability in knowing what they have generally, as opposed to always getting the best
0: deal. I know uh, that's something that we've really tried to develop in, in our group. We have uh, around fifty assets just in this county that we sit in right here, and creating that uniform deal is is a game changer when you're doing high transaction volume. Like for us, for small office, and small industrial, sometimes we're doing you know two, three, four leases a day, um, and so. You can't be renegotiating every single deal term. That's just it just doesn't make any sense, both, you know, economically, logistically down the list. So my question is how do you keep track of all that data? Um, because that's <laughs> that's a huge issue, right? Um, and like we live it in is. a world where everyone's always like, Oh, data, data, data. And data's awesome. But <laughs> if you if you're sorting through data that's just endless and not organized, it's like trying to bail the ocean. It's just not gonna do anything. So how how do you deal with the the large volume of data that you're working with with all your clients
1: so that is if you know much about me from the past and hopefully some of the people that are watching this have been following my my youtube channel and and some of my growth in the industry in the last few years but one of the reasons for our move from our prior firm to our new firm is their technological options and so my team since we moved in june of this year june of 2023 we have been working with the IT teams to develop software specific to us and protected by us that tracks all of that. So it is accessible, one, to my team that handles all of your deals. Um, so at any given point, my team is constantly updating. If they touch a deal, they're telling the system and they're inputting what they touched, why, what the next anticipated touch is. That tracking system has the client, it has whoever their business person. So a lot of clients will have kind of a director of real estate role or a real estate rep or kind of the person on the ground finding the deals and project managing. That person's name is in it so that you can sort and function or and so you can sort and search by it so that you can always give an update. It's got landlords names. It's got repeat landlords. It's got repeat landlord counsels because we find Real estate is a small world, even though we're working nationally, I still end up working opposite the same real estate attorneys all over the country. And so when I have relationships with them, deals get done a lot faster. They're a lot more effective because we know each other. We know the needs of the clients. And so all of that is kept in our our system and I can sort and search by it. So I'm making sure that if one client has dealt with one landlord and it's done by one particular person on my team. That same group of people is going to do every deal from then on. And that makes the deals uniform. It makes them fast. It gets us to signing and moving forward much quicker. Um, It also has an outside function. So we give our clients access to that same program. It's a little more limited, but our clients have that program so that rather than sending, hey, I haven't heard from you lawyer in like a week and a half. Like what's going on with this site out in Utah? They can go to our site without having to send those mini check-in emails, look at it, sort by their name, sort by the site names, look at it and see exactly where every deal they've got going with us is. Um, so it's faster for them. It's faster for us. It also gives me as lead attorney the ability to go in at any time. And if the client calls me and is saying, hey, we're having issues in this one deal, I can look where the attorney is and step in where needed or reach out where needed. And I know exactly what's going on. So we have all of this data. We keep all of this data and then over time what we're hoping to do and what we did at our prior firm with a different sort of software was be able to show that we have shortened deal times. So we have shortened deal times by 1920% because of the uniformity, because of the reliability of your team and the processes and the forms that we've put in place, we can get you to signing faster, which means we get your doors open faster which means you make money faster.
0: <laughs> Look, time, time kills deals, right? Um, anybody Absolutely. Who's, anybody who's spent uh, more, than, uh, more than a couple deals in the real estate world knows that. Um, and so following up on that, you've done a lot of deals in general, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when you do a lot of deals and you spend a lot of time in the industry, you start to see reoccurring problems. And I'm sure you're starting to see reoccurring <laughs> problems in some of the data. So I'm curious, what's one of the biggest reoccurring problems that you're seeing that if you're a landlord or an investor out there that maybe you should consider down the line?
1: Oh, my goodness. So one of the most common issues that I see is not understanding how long things are going to take. So on the retail side, and this is not (laughs) real, but I get that. yeah. Yeah. I will say that it's it's both ways. So it's not just everything takes longer than you're hoping it is. I will say that I see it kind of balanced on both sides, but not truly understanding how long things. So on the retail side, which is unique to retail, I will say, but 80% of my practice is retail. So that that's kind of where we're going to focus on that. But most deals have a due diligence period, and then they have a permitting or approvals period to get your land development and your building permit and all this stuff you need to actually put a shovel in the ground. And I will say everyone negotiates an LOI with the best of intentions, but inevitably my landlord is saying, oh no, I know the guy that gives building permits. It's gonna take you 30 days. You don't need you don't need a 60 day diligence period. You don't need 120 days to get permitting. Like Bob down at the local office, he's gonna love having XYZ national tenant. It's going to be awesome. He's just going to rubber stamp it. That never happens.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it never happens.
1: (laughs) It never happens. (laughs) And I love it because I have also seen so many landlords who are very well connected and do have those connections. And I get it. And I understand why they say that. But I've had them even step in and say, you know what? We'll agree to a shorter time period. We'll do it for you. So we will get it done in 30 days. And 120 days later, landlords asking for extensions because they're like, we don't understand. Well, when you're building a mom and pop shop for yourself, you get to do things when you have to build to a national standard. And that's what everything looks like. Everybody looks at it. And it's just, it's just the reality of it. But I will say I've had a lot of problems on the other side of that too, where somebody has been burned on that. So the retail side, that business person has been burned They've had to go back and ask for extensions, and everybody hates being in that position when you know you've got you've got a hundred thousand dollars in the deal, your permits are still ninety days out, but you've only got thirty and you have to go back and say, "Hey, I need sixty more days because it means landlord's rent date is getting pushed out. It's meaning all of these things. So everybody hates being in that role. So I've started seeing that business person ask for an exorbitant amount of time. So now we come into this local place they're like we need 270 days all of this stuff and we sign the lease and they call me and they're like bob gave us permits and so we waive. and the landlord goes well, wait a minute you're not supposed to be here for another 200 days so it's not done and landlord's not prepared for it to be done which means landlord may have to still evict tenant or You know, grade the site, and landlord is shocked by it. Now they're afraid they're going to get burned on the other side. They're not going to be able to deliver on time. So both sides of that are not great for either party. Again, I really I get laughed at at work all the time because I have my marriage like story. I discuss real estate transactions as marriages because you don't want to hate each other on the wedding day, which is the day you sign the lease because all we're doing is negotiating a relationship that's going to last 20 or 30 years. We're not we're not all done. You don't get married and then say see you in 50, hope we get there. It's,
0: it's not a sale. It's not a sale. It's not <laughs>
1: a sale. It's so in a lease, like you're going to be stuck with each other. You got to talk to each other and really looking at those dates, a lot of my clients, we now, we negotiate all the way through, we get down to the signing of the lease and I'll say, "Hey, What does your permit team say this is really going to take? And then we go back and readjust dates so that everyone's a lot closer. Everyone's just a lot more aware of what's going on. Nobody's surprised because believe it or not, the surprise on either side doesn't really make anybody happy. Like it sounds like everyone goes, well, if we take it early, the landlord's rent starts earlier and that's great. But I found like the landlord isn't prepared for you. And then they're panicked on the other side. So The more you talk, the more you really understand the dates and everybody's in communication, the happier everybody's going to be.
0: Yeah, one of the things I've seen on that topic, generally in Chicagoland, and our focus is greater Chicagoland, um, even the tri-state area. um, What we've seen is permitting has really significantly lengthened post-COVID because a lot of offices have outsourced permitting. Is that something that you've seen landlords discuss on a national level? Because that's certainly something that we've seen and it's substantially delayed the real estate process as a whole. And a lot of brokers Mm -hmm. and firms pre 2020 who who did deals are like, oh, it takes 60 days or it takes 30 days. Mm -hmm. And for folks that have been doing enough deal volume, we've realized that that's no longer the case. Is that something you're seeing in other markets?
1: So I will say that I'm seeing that in different areas of the deal, up and down. So it's very circular. So permitting, I would say we're getting closer and closer to being what we were. Um, Because I think, one, deal volume has slowed down. So now it's catching up. We went through, COVID kind of happened. Everybody got out of the office. But then real estate just boomed right after that. So end of 2021, all of 2022, we were doing ridiculous amounts of deals. So not only did you have people not really back in the office, but you had an extra volume above and beyond what they were doing when they were in the office. So there was just a lot of growing pain there. Um, I still see a little of that, but real estate deals have slowed and people are coming back to the office. So that's balancing. What I am seeing is particularly in diligence smaller jurisdictions so kind of your rural western virginia like your utah's your montana's i'm seeing that a lot of offices are only open two or three days a week so it's not that they're working remotely but they're only open on tuesday wednesday thursday which means you can't apply for a permit on friday (laughs) you can't do it on monday they're just and that and that's true of not only permitting but it's being it's true of title i'm finding land records are only open on tuesday and thursday in some very rural jurisdictions and with a lot of my clients especially ones that may or may not be federally regulated they have to have if they're going to put one you know one location in a high income area they're required to balance it with a lower or moderate income area so we are still doing a lot of those rural lower income areas. And we're running into that problem. We're used to those were rubber stamps, because they were thrilled to have a national tenant, they were excited to have, you know, a QSR, something in there, and they were just pushing it through. Now they're just not open. Um, So a lot of that I'm seeing in areas where it used to be easy, everything slowed down. Same with surveying. Surveyors are backed up like nobody's business. Surveys are really behind. I'm seeing environmental reports being you know, they used to take three weeks. Now they're taking six, um, just to be told it's clean. So it's not like they're digging into to dirty dirt. They're, they're just behind. There's fewer of them. They're working a lot harder and they're doing great work, but it's just taking longer. Um, so I am seeing diligence right now, just taking longer, which is unfortunate, but we factor that in, and that's one of the benefits to doing hundreds of deals. I will say my team does thousands of deals a year. Um, I personally still handle a lot of deals, so I probably still manage and am responsible for between 200 and 300 deals a year as an attorney. Um, my team members, some of them more or less, and then I oversee them. So we touch a ton of deals and we talk constantly. So. This call is in the morning. I've already talked to three of my team members this morning twice. Just because we got in new deals this morning and I needed them on them and we had conversation about capacity and what's going on, where they are, what regions they prefer. We've already got them started on new deals this morning. So because we do so much volume, because we talk to each other daily, these things come up. They happen twice and I'm getting a call from one of my team members going, hey, I'm finding this is happening. Are you finding this is happening? I send out a blast. Everyone's like, yeah, we need to let our clients know. So they need to be negotiating longer environmental periods or they need to be applying for things earlier. And we just had one large client switch up their entire title ordering process because of the new time lags in some areas. So now if we get a deal from them in a certain region, title is ordered three weeks earlier than it used to be so that everything stays on time.
0: I know we're talking about going all over and there's one tenant that is all over and that is the U.S. post office. Um, <laughs> uh, in, in, terms, in terms of that, I know uh, I've talked to you in the past and um, uh, I've heard you speak on the problems that we're experiencing with the post office. And uh, I'm curious because that's something that every single one of our listeners has and can relate to in their town What's going on with the post office and eviction law and all sorts of issues? Because I know there's been consolidation, there've been issues. Um, what should landlords that, you know, maybe are reached, reached, reached out to by the post office who think, oh man, that's a really stable, great tenant that's about to hop in. Um, what are you seeing?
1: So I will say landlords aren't really being reached out to by the post office. Um, most of our post offices exist and have for... A very long time. Um, And I know that the post office in the town I grew up in is still there in that location. So it's got almost 40 years and it probably was there before I was born and for many, many years beforehand. Um, So you have investors that specialize in owning government service buildings. And that's not just a post office thing. That's all. So the FBI, all of their buildings are owned by, well, not all of them, but generally speaking, Their buildings can be owned by third parties and then they lease them. And that's a government services agency. You deal with the federal government when doing those leases. They're very formulaic. You have very little negotiating power. It's basically, here's your lease, take it or leave it, but we'll pay you every month. So that's kind of nice. What I'm learning is that post offices, you have your landlords that specialize in owning post offices and they know what that means you know, the post office is going to be itself, it's going to pay every month, every five to 15 years, depending on your lease term, you're going to sign a new lease that you have very little negotiating power over, and they're going to continue paying the rent. So that's what you get. What I'm finding recently is that some developers are going out some newbies in the business, which I get, you look at a post office, it's been there for 40 years, It's not the best building. It's really kind of a teardown from a developer's perspective. And you've heard that post offices are closing and that they're doing some mergers and they're taking up less of a footprint. So you think, well, I know their lease is expiring in six months. The building's a teardown. They're going to want to move or get out of it. I'll lease it. We'll, we'll demolish it. Scrape and lease it to a retail tenant and get somebody else in there. And the problem is the post office doesn't have the ability to be like, okay, we understand you didn't renew your lease. We're just gonna pack up and go. They're a federal agency. In order to move, they have to get all of these internal approvals. They have to get internal funding and then they have to find another location or they have to merge. But there are a whole bunch of notice requirements as you can imagine, your local town post office can't close and not tell anybody about it because it's the town post office. So the post office, even if their lease runs out, doesn't necessarily have the ability and is not nimble enough to get out. And so you can't end up with an entity, a government entity in a building that they don't technically have a right to be in for months and months and years and years. and. There's no true eviction process. Those leases are governed by federal law. There is an administrative board within the post office itself that you can appeal to. And, you know, within. they understand, but it still doesn't solve the problem. So you end up with a landlord who didn't really know what they were buying, trying to lease it to somebody that wants the site because it is post office probably right in the middle of town on a great corner. And yeah everybody's got, the post office isn't trying to be difficult either. The people that work there are like, we would love to move. We want a new building. We want nicer stuff. So you have the people working the post office that want to move. You have a landlord that wants the post office to move. And you have a tenant that wants to be on that location and nobody can do anything about it. And it's just really frustrating for everybody. And so that's, That's something, again, it doesn't mean you have to walk away from it. I've got a couple of clients on all sides of that that are still trying to make it work. But you're at the mercy of the federal government, you're at the mercy of them funding a move. You're at the mercy of the fact that the federal government seems to shut down every now and then. So you're really not getting anything done. And it really slows down a deal. And I've seen that slow down deals for years. So it's just something as a developer, as an investor, that it's probably not the best place to be for your first deal. It it yeah. takes somebody yeah. that's got patience, that's got the ability for capital be, to be tied up. Um, but it it's an interesting problem that I have seen. I actually have done a lot of post office deals in the past. I get it. But for whatever reason, the, I've seen a couple of deals come up with that exact same scenario. Landlords bought it. Post office needs to get out. They're trying. I have a client that wants to move in and we're all just kind of in this big stop gap where we're crossing our fingers and hoping after you know a few more months the post office will finally write a check and, and help these people move out um, and it just it's frustrating for everybody. so it's just you need to factor that into the deal because you end up spending money on things like permitting that then have to be extended, they expire. Um, and it can be an investment and it can be a lot more costly than you're originally anticipating. So things like government, if you're going to be taking something that has a government or sometimes even a nonprofit, if it's, if it's government or federally or grant backed, those grants can really control what they can do. So when you're dealing with someone other than a truly private party you just need to do your research before you're buying it or before you're leasing it or before you're trying to take over. Because again, just because everybody's on the same page and wants the same thing, the paperwork and the internal stuff can really slow it down.
0: Look, uh, our group uh, more than a couple decades ago would have never worked with nonprofits or the federal government. And we found that uh, particularly federal leases and, and federally backed nonprofits are pretty good. I would say the state of Illinois that we've done deals with, <laughs> that's uh, been pretty difficult. Um, sometimes you don't yep. get paid for eight, nine months. Uh, with If you're a, uh, an early stage landlord or uh, a developer, that's probably not your tenant number one. Um, yep. In terms of going down the list of other big problems and things that are going out, you're a retail specialist and... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, One of the big things that's kind of happened, and I saw the Wall Street Journal talking about this a couple weeks ago, is outside space. And I know for us, there was an absolute, uh, I don't want to curse on this podcast, but absolute craziness about outside retail space during the pandemic, where it was an absolute necessity, but at the same time. It was something that caused a little bit of combativeness between tenants. What are you seeing in terms of outside retail space? Because it's a necessity in the modern world as we get more walkable and we, and we develop kind of health, I would say healthier neighborhoods. It's something that we <laughs> want to pursue. But at the same time, it creates a lot of issues between tenants where there are free riders and there's liability. And it's a concession that sometimes happens between tenants themselves.
1: So. I will say it it depends greatly in suburban America, rural America. It's not really an issue. I mean, a lot of those places you're on big lots of land. The landlord says, Oh, you want this sidewalk? Fine. It's not going to be anything else. We're happy. Um, I live in Boston.
0: (laughs) so Some narrow streets in Boston. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Here it's actually been, especially for restaurants. So during COVID, with all the restrictions, you know we have really small. These restaurants are buildings that were built 200 years ago, so they already only fit seven tables. And then if those tables have to be six feet apart, they can serve like three (laughs) and three people, not three tables. (laughs) That's it. So outside, outside space just became a huge premium here in Boston. And then what happens is when you can't take the sidewalk because everyone walks in Boston. So you can't put those tables on the sidewalk. So they're giving up parking um, and the restaurants are getting the city is essentially leasing them portions of the city or the streets, which are owned by the city. Um, And then you're taking away parking from the neighborhoods, which is a whole nother issue. Um, (laughs) So in the inner city, what I'm finding is one, it's not much of a landlord tenant problem is it is a city tenant problem. So the landlord will say, I've seen a lot of leases, landlord will say, we'll cooperate with you, but we're not guaranteeing it, and we're not going to be on the hook if you don't get it. Um, But we'll sign an application as long as it doesn't cost us anything. Um, And it's really, because in a lot of those cases, you can't take up the sidewalk for accessibility issues, um, so you end up having to be in the street, and you end up fighting with the city um, and trying to get places. And Boston has done a pretty decent job, Between, I think, it changes annually because our weather is so unpredictable, but I think it's roughly like Memorial Day to early October. You can pay a fee to the city, essentially, for the rent of those parking spots and build out and have the outdoor space. And then at the end of the season, you have to take it back up. Um, And it seems to be neighborhood specific here. So the South End is a little more outdoor friendly. The North End, I think, has a process for it and Seaport. You don't really need it because it's already so large, um, but I'm really seeing it outside the shopping center setting in the cities. It's really more of a, a tenant. There's not much in the lease to deal with it. It's more of a landlord punt it to whoever actually has that outside ability. In a shopping center setting with retail, what I'm seeing is that it tends to go to the big boxes. So they don't want it to look junky. And that's always gonna be it. Um, you don't want these piles and piles. It's the same reason you have so many prohibited uses against secondhand stores going out of business sales. Anyone that's ever read a retail lease knows that you can't do anything <laughs> like that without consent, and you're not gonna get consent. Um, and so they're always afraid of of it looking like there's just junk on the street. So I find that the outside space goes to the big boxes. It's gonna go to kind of your your Harbor Freights and your Lows and the places that have really nice outside displays that they're constantly turning over. That's always clean. That's organized because it's really what they do. Um, I will see that restaurants, non-QSR restaurants do sometimes get outdoor space for outdoor seating. That tends to be regional because do you really care about putting in and investing in that in Maine where you're in the snow or in upper Montana, but down in Florida, You know, it can be really nice. There's fans, especially in middle America, where you get a fall and a spring. I find that that's a high, a high value. Um, Used to, and I'd love to hear what you're finding this used to, I found that that was kind of a benefit. So, oh, we can give you the corner and you can build and you can have your tables in your outside space. And as long as you insure over it and maintain it, we're good. Now I'm seeing landlords say, hey, that's extra square footage and we want you to pay for it.
0: Yeah, I think that's, for us, we don't do really that much retail, but we do a lot of quasi retail, a lot of flex space. And in flex space, that's been really a huge issue, something that we're going through in a lot of leases, (laughs) where you have outdoor spaces, be it breweries, or be it restaurants, or be it Mm. places that have gone into kind of flex industrial parks. Um, and then at the same time you have experiential uses, which is something we do a lot of, you know, you have your dance studio, your gymnastics, your, uh, all sorts of experience with your indoor golf and all these people, there's the confluence of activity that's going on in the park mm-hmm. and people are fighting for parking spots and they're fighting for, um, and they're fighting for access to ingress Mm -hmm. and egress. And as a result, you start to see a little bit of fight that goes on in the parking lot. Um, I think well-parked buildings, and we have plenty of them, uh, that's not an Mm -hmm. issue. People are happy to see the activity. But when you start to get thin on parking spots, the world starts to get a little more hotly contested. And so that's what we're seeing kind of in our world. And, and, it's, and it's a balance. It's a balancing game. And I think uh, it's uh, a balancing game for the future of a lot of municipalities. Because And, and, I, and I, the next topic I want to get into that uh, talks a lot about this, but we've seen a big transformation in kind of industrial and flex industrial over the last you know half decade. Um, And so as we start to see industrial probably remain pretty firm, I mean, we're going to see a contraction from 2020 for sure. What are you seeing in the industrial world?
1: So it's going to be steady. I think the world was shocked that industrial like spiked when everything else was falling. But it makes sense what falls under industrial. I think people forget like everyone loves that their Amazon package comes in 24 hours. (laughs) And less. the reason they can, <laughs> yeah, or less. I've heard my sister lives in Houston. She gets things in two to three hours. It's incredible. But the reason they can do that is because they have some sort of massive warehouse stuffed with half of the stuff that they're selling to that region. And that's industrial. So I think when people hear industrial, they tend to think, oh, you know, steel and smelting and things that smell really bad and... And that's just not what modern industrial is anymore. Um, Industrial parks now, one, I think we're moving away from industrial parks because industry and industrial isn't producing the same toxicness and the same environmental issues that it used to. Now you can put a brewery next to an Amazon warehouse and nobody's worried about smoke. Um, There's probably more smoke coming from the brewery than there is the Amazon warehouse. Uh, So industrial is just changing. I think it's going to become much more mixed use. I think we're going to see industrial really folded into places. Because again, if you put the industrial park on the outside of town, it's going to take longer to get your Amazon package. If it's down the street right outside your building, and they did a really nice job making it look nice and fancy from the outside, and you're going to get your Amazon package in two hours, generally speaking, people like that. They may not say it publicly, but they really like being able to get those things that quickly, so I'm seeing it it integrate more as industry is changing um and I think that's really what's happening um As for people looking for industrial space, those people are still going gangbusters. The increase in cost of capital has slowed it down a little, but your big capital influxes your j v s those type of partnerships where you're not borrowing at a at a market interest rate directly are still looking. Um, so I don't think that's really gonna change, um, but the outside kind of the third parties that are relying on, on true you know, national cost of capital investments, they've slowed down in that space.
0: Yeah, um, we've definitely seen a slowdown for um, particularly I would say the smaller end, The the bigger end is still going pretty strong Um, not as much on the development side, but just leasing. Um, Mm -hmm. What we've seen generally overall, and and I would be curious on touching uh, on this with Mm -hmm. you because you've done pretty substantial transaction volume, is kind of infill leasing and infill development. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had a number of guests on the podcast in the last probably three or Mm -hmm. four uh, months, and many of them have discussed infill. And the biggest Mm -hmm. issue that we're seeing Uh, is I don't think for most markets, it still makes economic sense to keep going further and further out. Because people are want they want, same day delivery, 24 hour delivery, they want their toothpaste there. And so you can't do that if you're going, you know, 60 100 miles outside of the city. So what we're looking at, is more and more sites that are coming into Chicagoland, into traditional retail, or into traditional locations like that. Is that something you're starting to see in other locations in uh, nationally, or is that just a Chicagoland feature?
1: So I would say with retail, we've always been looking, I mean, retail generally is just looking for population density. Um, and that, that's really what governs a lot of my clients and where they're going. So if there are the people there, then they're going to fill it, which means in a lot of cities, even with the exodus that kind of happened during COVID, retail was still looking to come into the cities um, and expand in areas. And there, honestly, a lot of my retail clients, especially ne- large national, large um, regional retail aren't as dependent, like they don't take out traditional loans. Um, they use a lot of their own capital or they use some sort of credit facility, that type of thing. So they're a little less sensitive to the actual interest rates. So they were taking real advantage of the exodus to get in and get some good deals on on inner city. I will say I do a lot of work in Boston. I do a lot of work in East Coast cities that are feeling it very differently than West Coast cities are feeling it.
0: Yeah, Uh,
1: And that I will admit that I have team members on the West Coast that really handle all of my West West Coast deals because it's its own world. Um, so I can't speak super knowledgeably about that. but
0: That's fine. Our last guest with <laughs> the West Coast, industrial guest.
1: There you That's go. Um, <laughs> so the West Coast cities are handling it very different. For East Coast, I think we've been very lucky. Um, the inner city is still growing. Boston has been underhoused for so long that the apartments and the condos are still just pouring in because we need them. Um, and I personally, this is a little selfish, but I love living in the city so i love having everything right down the street there's not a lot of vacant retail space in my neighborhood or at the surrounding neighborhoods boston's small which helps we're like i don't know seven square miles or something like that so the city of boston is, is pretty active there's not a ton of vacant retail space that remains vacant for a ridiculous amount of time it doesn't feel empty um and i really enjoy that and i do think that a lot of cities like Boston are still encouraging that. And the city governments are still trying to encourage that. Um, and so infill has always kind of been a thing here. Now and, it's and, a little cheaper.
0: <laughs> and, and what about infill for industrial? Cause that's what I, I was really trying to touch on is, oh, okay, um, are, are you, and that's fine. And you're a retail, absolute retail expert. Yeah. A blessing to have you on, but, um, in terms of going through and understanding infill for industrial, is that something that you're seeing? Because we're starting to see it in Chicagoland. I know our, pa- our past guests have mentioned it in LA, and Florida, and a number of locations. Is that something you're seeing on the East Coast?
1: So I'm not, and again, that's not my super specialty. I'm not. And I think part of that is just the East Coast is so densely packed. Yeah. So we we don't have you can go an hour outside of Boston and it's still tightly dense neighborhoods. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. outside, I mean, Connecticut is dense. There, there is no rural Connecticut. Um, there's definitely no rural Rhode Island. <laughs> so I think the issue, it's, we don't have that because we really don't like the industrial parks and stuff around here really are in the middle of neighborhoods. Like you will yeah. walk around them. Um, They're still parks because that was the industry standard when most of them were built. So they're kind of their own little spot, but you got neighborhoods and everything built right around them and they're right there. Um, so we just don't have the land volume. I think for that really to be a big market that people are are searching for here. Um, so that's probably the best answer I can give just because it, I'm not super knowledgeable about that, but that's my gut instinct as to why it's not so in our faces here.
0: So there's one more thing I wanted to touch on uh, before we get to the end of the podcast and before we get to our final four. And that's, look, you do a large enough transaction volume that you see a lot of industry trends occurring. What's the biggest industry trend that our listeners should be watching out for? Um, I could be more than
1: on one. On it? <laughs> I know. I'm... I'm thinking, let's see. I mean, honestly, I'm seeing retailers taking advantage of this fear of the recession. Like, we are in expansion mode, and I'm getting told on other places. I'm talking to other partners inside my firm who represent retailers in other areas, but not necessarily their real estate expansion. And they're saying, hey, because of everything that's going on, this is a great time. Like, landlords need us. Um, And so I am seeing the conversation around doing more of a full court press to get lesser expensive land and lock in lesser expensive rents uh, and that sort of thing coming up on the retail side. Um, It's one of those things. Retail can kind of be depending on your retail client can kind of be a little recession proof in deal volume because of where because of how they plan things. So my clients now, the deals I'm getting, the deals I got yesterday, they're anticipating those opening in 2025. So just the planning cycle for a lot of retail keeps it recession proof, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, and because of that, I'm hearing national expansion coming. So, as a landlord that's looking to do retail volume, I would definitely be calling your contacts. I think they're out there, especially QSRs, who did great during COVID. They're they've got cash, um, and they're looking to expand. So, QSRs are expanding. Uh, there are all sorts of regional brands that are now looking to go national. That I'm seeing that used to be, you know, Pacific Northwest, and that's all they did now i'm seeing them going into the southeast i'm seeing them used to they had you know one or two regional councils up in their area and they might do one deal now i'm seeing them dealing with you know national like i'm opposite greenberg is their their council so they're expanding they're reaching out to to bigger law and really trying to capture that so i do think retail expansion is an area and then there's also a lot so a lot of my clients actually do the development so they do the lease they do the development of the site and then they sell it to what we call triple net investors and that's its own breed of of investor it's very that's hands-on.
0: a whole different world whole different world yeah
1: and that, but that's what they do they it's really a diver like, it's a way to diversify their portfolio but all they own they literally say i'm going to collect my check the tenant's going to pay for everything else um, and so a lot of what you'll see is is the QSRs and those developers, that's their goal. So they're going to hold for three to five years, and then hopefully sell it with a decent cap rate to a triple net investor. So that market I'm still seeing really going, I'm still getting even from some of my smaller clients, I'm still getting five to seven deals a year, um, which is a lot for a smaller re- regional investor. So I have a few of those. I like, you know, I love having, I do have the really national, the national brands that we do their expansion, but I also love doing like dealing with the guys that are a lot like me. They're doing their expansion and they're, they love just being on the ground and they're doing it with their own money. And they feel things very differently than a national expansion person does. And they're, they're fun. Those are the ones that, that'll call me in the middle of the night and be like, Annie, did I make a bad decision? <laughs> um and and I feel it with them and I panic with them. Um, but the best part is, you know, I also have 2,000 attorneys at my beck and call that can that can help them out too. So those are fun.
0: On, on that note of kind of looking towards um, major trends, uh, I'd like to get into the final four. And the final four is, right. is our, our go-to uh, where uh, we get to learn a little bit more about you and a little bit more about the commercial real estate world at the same time. So uh, 10 years from now, uh, where do you see the market going uh, in terms of uh, retail trends? um, And what should we be looking out for?
1: So the reality is, if I knew the answer to that question, I'd be so much more wealthy. (laughs) 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 Real estate is cyclical. I don't know. We've been talking about a recession and that real estate is always the, the worst thing to happen during a recession. And that has not been my experience in the last two or three years. Um, it may change, but real estate is so cyclical, regardless of how long or short that, that circle around it tends to come back. I think retail will always be part of it. I just, I love boots on the ground retail. Um, I also shop online a ton, but there's just something about in certain areas, you want to be able to go in and pick it up and try it. Um, so I think retail will continue to expand. I think it will look very different. Um, I don't know what that difference is going to be. Uh, but between technology, self-checkout, I think I think the store clerk is probably on its way out. Um, but I'm really, I still think there's always going to be a need for walking in a store and picking up and holding an item, especially an item of a certain value. You know, nobody really cares to try out all the toothbrushes, but but to go in and spend $100 or something greater than that, I think people are always going to want to feel it. I think the return process, I don't know. I am terrible at returning things. I'm that person that orders from Amazon, forgets the 30 days, and then has to donate it. because. I never managed to put it back in the return bin. Um, and I, I think that's a fairly common problem. So I do think that more of your long-term items, more of your expensive items are always going to need kind of boots on the ground retail.
0: Yeah. It's hard to return a car. Um, <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, so <laughs> in terms of going
1: Have you ever wondered, they're like, you can return it after 100 days. And like, who reboxes a mattress? Like, how?
0: I don't know. I want
1: to meet the person that actually exercises that option (laughs) and see how they manage to return one of the mattresses that you get, like, the 100-night sleep guarantee, and you're like, 99 days, I'm done.
0: (laughs) There's got to be a way. There's got to be a way, right? Uh, But not me. <laughs> so on that note, um, and going through and talking about returning, um, one of the ways that we uh, uh, kind of learn a little bit more about you is returning to your high school self. So you're a senior in high school. What would you tell yourself if you had one minute?
1: Hang in there. I so I graduated from Tulane. My first year at Tulane was Katrina.
0: Oh, so then I got
1: the pleasure of going to the oh, University oh my of Alabama. God. Um, so I was what we call the Katrina kid at the time. So I moved in, I moved out. Um, and then I went to law school, I graduated during a recession, there were no jobs, there was nothing available. Um, and then when I did get a job, I started at a five person law firm, and it was tiny. And everyone said, well, you can't go to big law. If you start small, everyone starts at big law and then works their way small, because that's the goal in life. Um, and I love big law. I love the the expansion. I love how many people and how many smart people are in one place, and how much knowledge I get to access. And I love being here. But I was told over and over again, you started small, like they'll never even look at you. And following that through, continuing, it took me many steps to get there. But I love where I am now, and I love the team I work with. And all along the way, I was kind of told, "Well, you're doing it wrong, and it's not going to work out." And There's a lot of a lot of that that I would go back and say, hey, it's going to work out in the long run, like hang in there, learn from those people. The things I learned in small law, my first day on the job in a five person real estate firm that the named partner hands me a survey and drives me to the site and says, we're going to walk it and you're going to tell me what's wrong with the legal description. It doesn't become any more dirt law than that. But I'm probably the only person in my office right now that could take a survey out and walk walk the land and figure out if it works or not. Um, Because I learned it in small law, big law is not going to spend the time to teach someone that. And I understand why, but those are just things that I wouldn't have if I hadn't learned along the way. Um, So it'll be worth it, but hang in there.
0: Look, I think that's terrific advice. Uh, My wife kind of came from medium medium to medium, smaller law. She was working at one of the largest firms in New Orleans and is now at a very large firm in Chicago. Um, and she had a very similar experience where uh, a partner was like, oh, this is, you know, now she's, I think, what, seven or eight years into her practice. And um, a partner came up and was like, oh, I'd love you to take this to court. And she's like, yeah, I've been to court, I've been to federal court like a bunch of times. Like, it's not the it's not a big deal. And the partner is just shocked and it's like, um, I think you get in a tremendous amount of experience, be it at a smaller law firm or, or a smaller real estate firm. I and mean, we're a shop that we're only about, you know, five or seven brokers here. And the experience I got day one in mean, it, it, it's it's totally different than somebody who'd be at CBRE or JLL. So um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of that, um, we can't always get things through experience. Uh, sometimes we got to read. Um, And we got to explore books. And um, we find that our guests, because they are men and women who are in the arena, and they are truly uh, on the forefront of real estate often, have unique advice in terms of what book we should pick up to learn more about the real estate world. And so I'm curious, what book should we be picking up or suggesting to our listeners?
1: Okay, you're going to hate my answer to
0: this one. That's that's totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) I, <laughs> i'm not, I I'm not lot much lot. of a hater so it's all right yeah.
1: so i actually i actually texted my husband on this one because i thought about it long enough and, and i was like i'm not sure what i'm gonna say and finally he said well what would you say to me if we were just chatting and i said the reality is i read a thousand pages a day um <laughs> that's what i get paid to do um so i can't remember the last time i read a business it was probably in business school when i got my mba um just sat down and read a, a business like textbook or even how to book or anything. And I think they're great. They're great basics. There's some great basics books out there that I learned differently. And I just learned hands-on, but I read a lot. I just don't really read books. I will say I work regionally. I have a huge practice in the mid Atlantic. So I read things like Richmond business, which is going to tell me everything that's going on in the area. Boston Business Journal, Wall Street Journal, um, periodicals, things that are super timely to me. I I read those every week. Um, but picking up the book that's been around, I just find like the things that matter more to me and my clients at this particular time in my career are interest rates. Um, and you're not you're not going to get that from a book that was written ten years ago, um, and it was probably written before that, and then goes through the whole editing process. So.
0: Look, that's it should that, not, that, it's that's, not this, that's, so, that's totally fine. I look, my wife is in big law, so uh, I understand as well. Um, and so there's only one question that I'm not going to let you weasel out of. And that is um, our final question. And it's the whole reason for the podcast. The whole reason for the podcast is to reach out and understand who, who we should be reaching out to, who are the men and women in the arena that are doing, um, amazing things in real estate or adjacent to real estate or in the business world, who would be, or who should we be reaching out to next?
1: So the two people that I thought of here are Stacy Mooney and Erica Darling. Okay. Um, And I don't know if you know who they are, Um, but they run a regional kind of conference called Retail Live. Um, And I started with them. So I think their second conference ever I I went. It's geared toward retailers and developers, and they're very regional. So Charlotte handles, I think, the southeast. They have an Orlando one for the Florida region. They've got Austin, Nashville, New York, all the all the different small regions. Um, I was the only attorney <laughs> present, and it was a fabulous place to meet developers and retailers. They're down. It's the down and dirty meat of retail. It's this QSR is looking for twenty four hundred square feet in this block, what do you have? And it's deal-making, it's connection-making, and it's essentially a competitor to ICSE, but I think of it more as a compliment. ICSE is huge. It's an incredible organization. It's got so much value, but it's huge. And Retail Live has these little pockets that I will admit a lot of my clients have come from it. It's been invaluable for me to be able to go to these conferences. They call me, ask questions. I love working with Erica and Stacey. I love what they're doing. It has boomed. So I started in 2021 with them, I think was my first conference. The conferences now are hugely more popular than they were back then. I hope it continues to grow for them, but I love what they're doing. I love the people they're connecting. And it's not just retailers and developers. I'm also meeting a ton of economic development groups. So the local towns in the area and sometimes I get them, they'll come up and say, Hey, we want to form a public private partnership and develop this land. that's completely useless. Um, And those are connections that they are looking for introductions into retail. They're going to be turning it into retail and mixed use and they need those introductions. But you know, the local County commissioner doesn't necessarily have a contact at a major QSR. Um, And they sure don't know, what type of lease they should be negotiating, and because they're a, a locality, what the pitfalls of that really are. Um, so, I've made a lot of connections in that sense that have been invaluable. So, I think they would be a great two of them. I think Stacy founded it. Erica, I think, came on shortly after, but the two of them together, I'm hoping, are unstoppable.
0: Look, we'd love to have Stacy and Erica on. Um, and uh, before we go, um, there's one final question we have to ask you. And that's, what's the best way for someone who's listening to this podcast and goes, wow, that Annie's great, we need to reach out. How, how do they reach out and get in contact with you?
1: One of two ways. So LinkedIn is probably my preferred. You can go to anniemallo.com, it's gonna connect you directly to my LinkedIn so you don't have to search for me or anything. So it's just my name.com. Um, that's gonna connect you to LinkedIn. I'm almost always connected to LinkedIn in some form. So I try to respond fairly quickly. Um, the other way, if you have a more direct client question, a potential client question would be through my firm email. And you can find that at com. That is my law firm, my email, my phone number, everything are directly on my profile site. And I always answer or get back to a voicemail. I try to, I have moved. And one of the first things, one of the junior associates said to me, was that me and my team are on the phone constantly. <laughs> And so I was like, I'm going to take that as a compliment. That means I'm always talking to someone and helping someone hopefully, but I do try to get back to everybody quickly.
0: Annie, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast and we have to have you on in the future.
1: Thank you. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) Thanks.
0: Thanks again to Annie for coming on the podcast, your support interactions and subscriptions truly matter and help us get quality guests. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.